Welcome to the Dublin Festival of History podcast, brought to you by Dublin City Council. In this episode from the 2021 Dublin Festival of History, author and academic Dr Gillian O'Brien discusses her book, The Darkness Echoing, exploring Ireland's places of famine, death and rebellion. The moderator is Michael Staunton, Associate Professor of History at UCD. The episode was recorded via Zoom on the 26th of September 2021. My name is Kate and our speakers today are Gillian O'Brien and Michael Staunton. Gillian is a reader in modern Irish history at Liverpool John Moores University. She's the author of Blood Runs Green, The Murder That Transfixed Gilded Age Chicago and of course The Darkness Echoing. Michael Staunton is a medieval historian and professor of history at University College Dublin so we're absolutely delighted to have both of them here this evening and without further ado Gillian and Michael I will hand over to you. Thanks Kate. And hello, everybody. And hello, Gillian. So I wonder if you could start off by telling us what dark history is and what got you interested in it. Thanks, Michael. And it's it's really nice to be here on a Sunday evening um, talking about darkness. Um, dark history is really sort of history or dark tourism is really tourism associated with anything that involves sort of death or misery or suffering. So it's anything to do with places kind of where bad things happened or stories of, you know, tragedy. And, you know, Ireland has a lot of those. And I think I became interested in that combination of dark history and dark tourism because I'd worked on two museum projects, one in Kilmainham Jail in Dublin and one in on Spike Island in County Cork. And both of those were prison museums and Spike Island was also a fort. And I was interested in how we tell those stories of you know suffering and of death and how we tell them and why we tell them and also I was interested in why people go to those sort of sites you know why on a Saturday morning someone gets up and goes I know what I'll do for the day I'll go off and visit a former prison that sounds like it would be great fun and yet thousands of people do that you know half a million people visit Kilmainham jail every year Um, And I was really interested at the start as just to why people, including people like me, why we go to those sort of places. And, you know, you're an academic historian, but this isn't an academic book. This is more of a personal journey informed by your knowledge of the history and your experience working in museums. But it is also your response. Um, You spent what something like two years traveling around Ireland, looking at cemeteries looking at landscapes, looking at museums, uh, monuments, is that right? Yeah, well, I guess I combined what I would do for pleasure with what I would do for work. And I think um, my family background, we would always been quite comfortable talking about, you know, what type of funerals we might want or things like that. And I spent some time in the last number of years, both living in the United States and also in England. And I realized that those sort of conversations that I would have quite normally with friends and family in Ireland about, you know, how you could have almost as much enjoyment out of a good funeral as you would out of a wedding. And I realized that those weren't necessarily conversations that uh, were normal um, among my American friends or among my British friends. Um, and I began made me really think about how is it or why is it that we're kind of comfortable with those conversations and also there's nothing I like more than a good graveyard so I thought for this book I would combine my interests in both. And something that comes up in the book all the way through is that there are different ways to approach death, suffering, famine 
incarceration and and so on. And this is, you know, it's obviously a very serious subject. And there's this terrible tragedy in in this book. You deal with the famine. You deal with uh, specific cases of of killings and uh, various other tragedies. But there's also dark humor. There's there's places and stories that are very moving. There's also ones that are that are entertaining. Yeah, and finding that balance is a, was a challenge for me, and I think it's a challenge in most of the museums that deal with these stories as well. Um, one of the th- ways I I think dealt with it in the book, and this was something that I thought about a lot before starting to write the book. I was very reluctant to put anything of myself in the book because. You know, I work you know, primarily as an academic historian and you always you're trained to keep yourself out of what you write and how you approach things. But there was I wanted there to be levity in the book because I didn't want it to be this sort of miserable tour through Ireland. And I thought the only way that really you could do that was in some ways, you know, to make fun of myself or to tell entertaining stories about my own experience or the experience of the people I took with me on the journeys. So that you could then deal with the very serious subjects of things like the famine and drownings and maritime disasters in a very serious way, but that you could then lighten it by telling other stories about your experience of actually going to the museum and the things that might happen, like getting locked in to one of the museums accidentally. So it wasn't making light of the tragedy, but making light more of my own experience while on the road. So tell us about um, some some of the places that you visited. Well, I think I covered almost all the counties in Ireland and it began, the whole premise was that I would go just initially to prison museums and I was going to write a very short piece about you know, the 12 prison museums in Ireland. And then once I got going and started to talk to people about this or mentioned on Twitter that I was doing this, you know, people would say, oh, you're going to be in Sligo. Well, you really should go to Caramore um, Megalithic Graveyard and see the tombs there because they're a graveyard and people were buried there. And then I'd go somewhere else and someone would go, I'd be in Cork and someone would say, well, you should go to your Clockgate Tower, which hadn't been on my list. But someone said, well, that was also a prison. So I went off there and then you'd meet someone else and you'd be sent off. And I could still be on the road if I had to follow up everything. And what was really refreshing about that was how enthusiastic people were about my journeys. I remember staying in a B&B in Portumna and having a really long conversation, not only with the B&B owner, but with all the other guests and some of her neighbours that were brought in to have a chat about where, we, where I might go. And the next day I was going to uh, the workhouse there, which is uh, kind of a remarkable uh, place site in itself. So the whole premise expanded and expanded and expanded and it took in memorials and graveyards and then it took in you know things like uh, poor uh, works that were done with poor law unions um, during the famine and so you can go to places where roads were built or in some cases harbours were built and see that and there's a sort of an element of this landscape of loss that once you start looking you can kind of see it everywhere and I found that actually very moving on my journeys. When you talk about the the landscape of of loss are there there particular places that you found especially moving or that seemed to to capture the experience of people from the past especially well? I think sometimes it was the really unexpected things that were most moving. Um, I remember going out to Inishbofin um, a few years ago with a friend of mine, and um, I didn't know anything about this great tragedy that had hit not just Inishbofin, but a lot of the islands on the West Coast 
1927 when a huge storm blew up and 44 people drowned. And there was a tiny thing about it and there's a tiny little museum on Inishbofin and there's also a little memorial plaque. And that got me thinking. And then I went off up to Eris um, and you could look out at the Inishki Islands where the tragedy had also had a huge impact. And I think it was knowing that that tragedy of 44 drownings in 1927, in some ways, the repercussions of that were immense because it began the evacuation of the offshore islands. So whole communities were absolutely devastated by that. And it was the small, those sort of smaller stories um, that really I found particularly moving or a small object. And I think um, I've written about this in the book with this small shard of a mirror that's on display at the National Family Museum in Strokestown. And it really shows how little people had in the years coming up to the famine and what need had people living on the poverty line of a mirror. Because why are you you're looking in a mirror to see how you look? These people had almost nothing. And so this one shard of a mirror amongst a community of several thousand. And there's something really moving about that that helps you try and, I think, visualise the life that a lot of people lived in a way that certainly for me, just giving figures and, and stats doesn't have any kind of emotional impact on me. It, it may well do on other people, but not, not for me. So, I mean, to take an example such as the such as the famine and the, the famine of the 1840s, which is something that anybody who certainly who grew up in Ireland will learn about it in school. There are reminders of it around. How is that? How is that marked in different places? Well, there's obviously there's the National Family Museum in Strokestown, and it is mentioned in a number of, of other museums. But I was quite surprised. I had kind of anticipated that there would be a lot more um, mention of the famine. There's quite a lot of famine graveyards that since the mid sort of 1990s have begun to be marked more formally. But one of the really unusual um, places I went to that marked the famine is in Kilkenny and it's in McDonough Junction Shopping Centre. And I was told I should go on this you know, audio visual tour that they have in the shopping centre. And I thought this is not this is going to be ridiculous. Who goes to a shopping centre to learn about the famine? Anyway, I was up to go for going to anything, went along, got my little pack, put on my earphones, had my little screen. And this first spot that you start off in is in the food court. So you're hearing on the phone or, or in your little earphones that part of this fancy shopping centre was once part of Kilkenny's workhouse. And you can see some of the walls. And it talks about how people came into the workhouse and how they had no food. And you're surrounded by the smell of Starbucks and you're listening to tinkly music as children play on the children's things. And it's really kind of discordant and it feels really strange. And then as you continue, it becomes really moving. It's a really moving story about how that site had been the workhouse and how they'd found hundreds of bodies when they began the excavations. And you end up outside at a memorial to those who died. And it was bizarrely and really surprisingly one of the most moving sort of tours that I did that is self-guided and free and a, you know totally unexpected. And it's something that I would absolutely advocate anybody who wants to do a famine you know, trip, that they go and do that. And that came as a huge surprise to me that it was so well done. And I think this is one of the, the things that I really enjoyed about the book is that not only does it tell you about a lot of aspects of history that, that I wasn't aware of, but it also tells you about places to, to go. And especially now when, when things are 
things are opening up and, and looking over the book again, just seeing a number of those places, especially small, small museums or uh, places maybe just a little bit off the beaten track um, uh, that sound really interesting. And I think I'll, uh, maybe, maybe in a little while I'll ask you specifically about some places in Dublin to, to recommend that people might not uh, think of. You said at the start just about how the Irish approach to death is is distinctive, that maybe it's a bigger part of people's lives in Ireland than other places. And why should that be the case? I mean, you could say that Ireland has a very tragic history in, in certain ways, but so does so does Poland, so does the Congo, so do various other places around the world. What is it particularly about the Irish appreciation? for death, I suppose, or acknowledgement of death? Well, I mean, I don't think we have a monopoly on a good death at all. I mean, I think a lot of countries do death well. I think, um, I guess, traditionally, I think the wake has been hugely important. And that idea of people gathering together in order to mourn the person who died. But I think one of the things that I've always thought that the Irish did well, and I think they did have done this really well historically, is that you go to a funeral, not just because of the person who died, but that you go for the people who were living. And you're going there as a show of support. So it's one of those sort of multi-generational events where people go because they're friends with the grandchild of the person who died, or the children, or they're a friend of the person. So it's that multi-generational thing of being there as a support and showing that you're there and turning up and I think the wake has historically been a hugely important part of that and that that and partly I think you know it is bound up in religious belief at least um, up until relatively recently where people genuinely believed that they were going to go to heaven after they died and therefore if you have a very strong belief you know the idea of death is less frightening because Mm you're going to somewhere else afterwards or you're meeting people who have gone before. But um, I think we we tend to have quite a black humour and so that you can talk about death, I think, in a a way that's sort of entertaining and that laughter very often sort of helps in a very stressful situation. And and what about the the role of of death in in the national narrative? I mean, you've got the, the proclamation of the Republic, beginning with reference to uh, the dead generations. You have the, the role of funerals uh, in many of the museums that you describe. It is about um, tragic events, executions and, and so on. Yeah, and I think, you know, in, in sort of the national and certainly the, the nationalist uh, version of Irish history, there's been a huge going back into the 19th century, funerals were used as a political kind of tool because it was where people could gather um, at points where you couldn't gather for other, you know, more ostensibly political uh, events. And so going back to the, you know, from the mid 19th century when young Irelanders or those who had been exiled died in America, they were brought back. And sometimes their funerals were brought back um, and used as fundraisers. They were also used as opportunities for political speeches. Patrick Pierce, um, you know, gave one of the most famous funeral orations in Irish history at the funeral of Donovan Rossa several years before the 1916 Rising. And that's a speech that in Class 7 Cemetery they uh, re-enact every day. Um, and so there's and, and others. I mean, if you go out to Class 7 Cemetery and go to 
see where O'Connell was buried. I mean, that where O'Connell was buried was largely uh, underneath this huge uh, round tower, largely paid for public subscription. You know, so people always were interested in acknowledging the dead in you know, a physical fashion by building a, you know, a fine tomb. And it's interesting if you go to Michael Collins's grave, which is the most visited grave in Glastevin Cemetery, that his grave is not very lavish. Well, that was partly because of restrictions put on his grave by Eamon de Valera in a, you know, several decades after his death, because I think he would have been aware that it would become a site of pilgrimage and didn't want a massive sort of lavish mausoleum for him. Speaking of, of Michael Collins, and, and in the book you talk about a number of different ways that Michael Collins has been commemorated in that in that very public state way, and also in, in smaller museums in Cork uh, and so on. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think in museums, there's always this difficulty is that you, as a museum person, you've got only a couple of hundred words to try and tell incredibly complex stories. Um, and that often means that nuance you know, isn't quite as apparent as it should be. And Michael Collins is a really interesting um, story. And I guess, you know, as is coming up to the centenary of the Civil War, there'll be a huge uh, amount about, you know, who killed Collins, why was he killed and, and all of that. And you get different ways of interpreting Collins across the country. So there's obviously, he, he is a key part of the, um, the display in the National Museum in Collins Barracks, but there's also Michael Collins' house down in Clonakilty, which isn't exactly Michael Collins' house. Michael Collins lived at one point near to the house that is Michael Collins' house. And then there's a private Michael Collins Museum just outside Clonakilty, which uh, where they have sort of a reenactment or they've done out bail and law in essentially alongside a field. Um, and there's all sorts of different interpretations. There was a day I was down in Clonakilty going to these various sites and I heard, I think, about six different people named as being responsible for Collins' death. And each person who told me this was absolutely adamant that they knew because they were related to someone so and so and so had told this person. It's, like, oh my God. It, it, it's amazing how, how it's such a live issue still today. Um, and how it's really very contentious. I mean, the people, it was all very good humoured when I, I spoke to them. But it's interesting, I think, that, you know, the GAA organisation down in Kilty is not Michael Collins in the way that loads of, you know, you've got like Michael Davitt and uh, John Mitchell, who's very controversial and plenty of GAA clubs named after people like that. But Collins is not the Clonakilty GAA club. And is it? True to say that a lot of the older museums, more established museums, the emphasis there when you're looking at dark history, it is on political history. It's on it's on uh, events connected with people like Michael Collins and so on. Has that changed much? Is there is there more attention to kind of social history, history from below? That's definitely changing. In the past, the emphasis has been on, you know, great men of history. Um, and the story has been told about, you know, very big events. And that's how we learn our history. That's how it was taught in school. That's what the books were about. And there weren't really stories of ordinary individuals. There weren't really stories of women. There weren't really stories of anybody who wasn't sort of associated with either the political establishment or it, to a large extent, Irish republicanism in any one of its very many forms. But I think that has begun to change. Um, and I think there is a whole lot more community 
museums that have grown out of like local communities. There is, you know, there are museums like the Museum of Country Life, um, which is, I think, is a life that's recognisable to a lot more people, or certainly that they could go and go, well, my grandfather did this or my grandmother did that. I think there are those stories that resonate are now being told uh, in a way that they hadn't been told before. I think something that comes through from your book as well, and from doing the tour, is is the acknowledgement that people respond to commemoration or to museums or various sites. They respond to it in different ways. And you brought along various people uh, on your tours, including children. Why did you bring children along to to these kinds of places? Well, I brought them along, well, for a number of reasons. They're very good company. I chose well with the children. I took nieces and nephews uh, with me, and I also took uh, two children of a friend of mine, and who all turned out to be excellent company. I was very glad to have them with me. But I did have an ulterior motive as well, because I wanted to see how children responded to the type of sites that I was interested in. Um, like forts and uh, prison museums and castles and various things. And I wanted to see, without giving them any sort of instruction, just to go off and, and see what caught their attention. And that was really interesting because I was curious as to whether or not they'd be heading off to see you know, the, whatever was on a screen. But actually, that wasn't what caught their attention. It was small things. It was individual stories that caught their attention. And it was particularly at sites they were really interested if they could go somewhere that had previously not been open to the public. Mm. So if they were in a fort that you know had been closed to the public for 100 years, then they were interested in that. They were particularly interested in the prison museums because they could go into cells, close the door and kind of experience something I hope that they never experience in real life. And I guess that they hope too. Um, so they were great. They And they also did alert me to all sorts of things that I wouldn't have seen. Um, so I really enjoyed, and I obviously I took adults, I dragged every friend and family member I could on various trips uh, with me, but getting other people's feedback, because I tend to go out with a critical eye, um, and getting people who don't work as historians or don't work with museums on a regular basis, that was really enlightening, I found. Yeah, and you've got a, a, a chapter here called Exit Through the Gift Shop, which looks at how tragedies can be commercialized in in many cases I mean, you talk about going to the to the titanic museum which is you know we can sometimes forget is commemorating a a, a tragedy that involved the deaths of of large numbers of people and you talk about the various kinds of souvenirs you can find there um i think an iceberg that that you drop in the bath or something um very <laughs> Uh, yes, ice cubes that you put in ice your whiskey or, or, or whatever you want to have. I mean, I love a good gift shop. And this is where um, it's all very contradictory because I'm also aware of kind of the exploitation of a tragedy, but equally go into a gift shop and lose the run of myself in there. Um, I think in the Titanic Museum in both Cove and in Belfast, they sell, and I think it's probably on a shelf behind me, um, they sell a snow globe. And it's a snow globe where of the Titanic, and when you shake it, um, silver foil, you know, dances around the Titanic, almost like shards of an iceberg landing. But what's just bizarre about it is the Titanic is permanently underwater when you buy the snow globe, and it just seems like a weird 
thing to go, I have a great idea of how we commemorate the Titanic is we put it permanently underwater. You can also buy, a, and I have also obviously bought this too, a, a Titanic uh, bath toy and you squeak it and uh, it makes a squeak and mine ultimately sank in the bath, um, which I don't think it was meant to do, a bit like the real Titanic. But yeah, there are things, I mean, and, and you know, during 1916, there were all sorts of um, things about commemorating 1916, you know, in a chocolate bar or in a type of whiskey. Um, and there's, I, I guess, most people, if you go into the shop of like a Tesco these days, you find wine called 19 Crimes. And on the front label of those uh, wine bottles, there are prisoners. You know, photograph mugshots of prisoners. Most of them are Irish prisoners, uh, Fenians who were transported to Australia and um, that are entirely being used as a way of, you know, marketing red wine from Australia going back to Ireland. Your section on, on prisons I found to be one of the most interesting because you you talk about, for example, going into Mountjoy prison, which is still a, a working prison. But you can also see there the the execution chambers. You talk about the the really shocking conditions of prison in and I think it was Yall, um, where you talk about uh, the prisoners who weren't fed and they they live in in uh, they're not even cells in in rooms that have no glass in the window. Yeah, and in, in Yall, they had to, they didn't get food. The only food they got, they were given a basket and a rope, and they had to lower the basket at the end of the rope down to the sort of street level. And they had to hope that some passing person would feel sorry for those who were incarcerated um, in what is the Clockade Tower and would put some food in. And if nobody put food in, they weren't fed. Um, I mean, the, the conditions in the prisons uh, were atrocious. And I think in some of the prisons, like in, in Wicklow Jail and Cork, um, you can really get a sense because you can still see graffiti um, inside them and you can get a sense of how people suffered. One of the real challenges in looking at prison museums is that we can talk a huge amount about the prisoners. But a lot of those prisoners were guilty of the crimes of which they were accused. And a lot of those crimes were really serious crimes. Yes, there were people in for stealing, you know, potatoes during the famine or, you know, really minor crimes. But there were also people in for rape and for murder. And we don't often tell the stories of the victims because it's, we don't have you know, that material. Those stories aren't often passed down. So there is a danger that we might glorify prisoners um, and forget about their victims. And that's a very fine line and something that all of the prison museums do try and deal with, I think. And of course, that doesn't take away from, from the, no. the the awfulness of the conditions. You can talk about both at the at the same time. I think, I think that's the thing. I think that's something that um, I learned very much uh, while doing this is that you can hold two totally contradictory thoughts in your head simultaneously, and that's fine. And I think like in this current world where everything is black and white, people are either good or bad and there's all this sort of cancel culture and there's all these things, nuance gets lost in the middle of that. And I think to a very large extent, we very often have to hold contradictory thoughts sort of simultaneously and that's fine to do that. And doing this trip and writing that book um, really brought that home that you can actually think a number of different things about the same thing simultaneously. Now, uh, as we said earlier, um, you can you can type questions in the uh, in in the 
the Q&A uh, box there, and we've got some already. Um, I want to ask you, Gillian, um, one of these. In terms of sites associated with dark history, how important do you think it is to ensure the interpretation adequately reflects the individuals who may have suffered and died there? Or how much is the onus on the visitors to respect the site in that regard? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I guess um, the the onus, I think, is on to, well, is on visitors to respect the site. But if they don't know what happened at the site, then it's very difficult for them to understand what happened and who who it happened to. For the most part, in sites in Ireland, uh, I found people were very respectful of. Um, you know, sites where tragedies really had happened. There was only one occasion which took place actually um, in um, the execution chamber in one of the prisons in Crumlin Road Jail, where there was a group of men who, as far as I could see, were on a stag weekend who thought it would be a good idea to go. And their behaviour in the execution chamber was unpleasant and very, very disrespectful, but it was shut down very quickly, not just by the guide, but also by the um, by the person who was running the, the tour. But that was the only occasion where that happened. For the most part, I found people have been very respectful, but it may, may be that I've just been lucky with the tour groups that I've um, been with. And also, I mean, related to this, are there certain things that we can identify with more than others? Are there certain events where we, we can still sense the tragedy we don't even have to think about being respectful are there others where where there's a a major distance there well i guess there's always the distance of time and i think we become a bit more casual about things when you know a huge amount of time has passed but there's always sort of issues with um in the book i deliberately didn't really look at the troubles in northern ireland because even though i went to and i've been on a lot of to a lot of the sites associated with it, mostly for other work. But I didn't want to write about anything where relatives were still alive. Um, And I did notice that the further back something goes. So if you talk about um, something that happens in the 17th century, people tend to be a lot less reverent than they would be if they're talking about something that's happened in some sort of living memory. That definitely has an impact, um, that distance of time, though you find people, you know, particularly with the famine, are always very reverent about that. But um, not necessarily if you go back much further. I um, did a tour at the Battle of the Boyne site where it was all about being gung-ho and how much blood was spilled and how this, and it was all about the gory detail. And I think, you know, the fact that there actually there were people involved uh, had been forgotten on that particular trip. But Really, for the most part, I have found that there has been a high level of respect for the tragic stories and that people, if they're telling, a, you, you know, they do try and invest some humour into it. But they a little bit like I tried to do with the book, they tend to be more recent or funny stories about people who've been to visit and things that might have happened to them or throw a ghost story in. That always brings levity. And are there are there groups of people that that maybe haven't been uh commemorated or their stories told as much as they they should be are there are there ways that and i mean i think something that comes through from the book is that there there are many ways in which in ireland um tragic history and death that they are 
commemorated and marked very well. But are there are, are there ways that that could be improved? Do you think? Yeah. Well, I think you know, for the most part, we've commemorated the big names, um, and so like one example was on Spike Island. Before sort of its more recent incarnation, there was a huge amount about sort of and talk about John Mitchell being on the island because he was the biggest name that was associated with the prison there. John Mitchell spent three nights on the island. Um, but it, it, you sometimes need a name in order to bring people in so you can tell then other stories. Um, and I do think that there has been um, an attempt to tell other stories more recently. You do find there's a lot more stories about women, not half enough, and very much they've been sort of tagged on. But I think, you know, nobody setting up a museum now would dare to uh, exclude the stories of women. There's been a real effort to include LGBTQ uh, stories in a lot of places. So, for example, in Kilmainham Jail, there is a, a, a queer history of Kilmainham Jail now available, which is really would have been unthinkable some, some years ago. You know, we are telling the story of the First World War and Ireland's involvement in the First World War in some museums now to a much greater extent, which we really had to do because so many more families had an, were impacted by the First World War than by those involved in the 1916 rising. So somewhere up like in, say, if you go to Cavan County Museum, the Valley James Duff, they have a recreation of a First World War trench. And I went up there with one of my nieces and that was really evocative. And we spent the entire car journey back you know, chatting about you know, what that might have been like. And those things, sort of things really sort of begin conversations that can be had there isn't enough, I think, in our museums about travellers. They are in some, a few museums, but very little. Um, and, you know, obviously there is a discussion now about having a museum um, marking the mother and baby homes and the Magdalene laundries. And the government has promised that this will happen and they've done very little about it. So this has been an ongoing conversation, but that really needs to be done. And I think the other group that we don't talk about so much our immigrants. Like Ireland is a country of immigrants, but we don't in our museums really reflect that. So I think more recent immigrants could easily go around Irish museums and not think, oh, actually, all the Vikings were immigrants too. It's Sometimes it's how we tell the stories, not what we tell, that helps make people feel that mm. they have some kind of something that they can hold on to and think about themselves. And you wrote this book, or you finished the book um, during the sort of the start of the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Did that make you think about, about the sorts of things you, you'd been writing about in a different way? Yes. Yeah, it, it had, a, I think, a considerable impact on how the book finished, certainly. I mean, I think I did the last, my last research trip was to Bally James Duff and Newgrange on the day before everything shut. And we'd been to Valley James Duff in the morning and went to Newgrange in the afternoon. And anyone who's been to Newgrange will know that it's always full of tour buses and you've got to wait you know, quite a long time before you get your tour bus up to go into actually, you know, into Newgrange itself. And we turned up. There were no cars in the car park, went in. The woman selling the tickets had time enough to go out and show us tadpoles and the deer. We were the only people there. And at that point, I knew, you know, this, this whole COVID thing was definitely going to have a considerable impact. And so there were a few sites I didn't get to see. But when I was writing it up, I was writing it up in Liverpool because I'd gone back to teach there and I couldn't go home. Um, and um, 
quite early on in COVID, one of my grandmothers died and I watched her funeral um, from Liverpool. And so at that point, you were allowed to have, I think, was it 10 or 20 people fully masked, only immediate family, and watched my family go in to that funeral while I was sitting sort of in my house in Liverpool. And you missed all of that sort of closure. You missed all of those conversations. You missed all of the things that make death sort of bearable. And like thousands and thousands of families in much more tragic situations than we were um, have gone through that without that sort of closure, without being able to say goodbye, without being able to hold people's hands. And I think that absence um, made two things apparent to me. One, how well we do funerals. And two, how isolated it must have been to be an emigrant in a previous generation. You know, I was used to being back in Ireland half of my time and suddenly I couldn't go back. But that was the situation for so many thousands, millions of people in Ireland up until very recent generations. And I think it really changed how I looked at the emigration chapter and gave me a much greater feeling for those who left and couldn't return for whatever reasons as family kind of went on without them. Um, And that definitely had an impact, I think, on how the book kind of ultimately developed. And I I noticed certainly in in my local park, and I think this may be the the case in other parks in Dublin, where um, a a bench has been put up with a a plaque uh, in memory of those who died during the COVID-19 pandemic, which seems like a, a very simple, but a very nice way of commemorating something. You know, it brings back the memory of that time, especially the early days when people were spending it in parks and, and, and so on. Um, there's, there's quite a number of questions coming in. So I'm going to, um, in no particular order, uh, I'll ask you some of, some of these. Um, when you were talking about Michael Collins's grave, um, saying that it seems a bit odd that De Valera would have such influence on Collins's grave, given that he didn't come to power till 1932. The, that, the grave that's in uh, uh, Glasnevin no, no. is not, that grave stone is much later than that. Um, so he was buried with a number of other military people yeah. uh, first, and it's several decades later. I can't think of the year off the top of my head. So it is that um, limestone cross that's over Collins' grave um, is one that was placed there much later if off the top of my head, I think the early 60s. Okay. Um, there's, somebody's made a comment that um, you can see a relatively hidden famine grave in Nokanana, County Wicklow, and, and we'll put up the, the picture to it. There's, there's, a, there's a link to it. And I think, Gillian, you also, there are something that you make a point of in the book is that we all focus, or we tend to focus on the 1840s famine, but of course there were many other famines um, that occurred in, in Ireland's history. Yeah, I mean, I've just written down Nakanana graveyard because I haven't been, but I will now that I know. Um, the Yes, I mean, we talk about the the uh, mid-19th century famine a lot and, and for very good reasons, but there were earlier famines. There's a famine almost a century earlier in the mid-18th century that Per sort of on a percentage basis was just as damaging, if not more damaging to the population than the famine of the mid 19th century. And I think there are a number of reasons we don't talk about it as much, partly because we don't have the sort of same material evidence. Um, you know, we don't have 
the same amount of newspaper coverage, you know, the same amount of illustrations, people didn't write about it as much. And that's one reason, you know, that we for certain things get a lot more attention than than others. Also, it was largely associated uh, with particular weather condition. And, and so the politics of it was quite different. But you can, if for those of you who know Kalini Hill or you know, those of you who don't, but if you do go to the top of Kalini Hill, you'll see an obelisk. And that obelisk was um, built um, as part of like a famine relief fund, give, offering work to people who were badly affected by the famine in the mid um, 18th century. So there are still remnants, if you know where to look, down near Cas in Castletown, um, near Castletown House, there's also a barn that was built um, for a similar reason. It's a very ornate barn um, and it was built again as sort of famine relief work. So there are still remnants of of other famines uh, in the countryside, they're just not as many. And I think it's always worth keeping a lookout and always reading. I mean, I drive people mad by going around reading everything I can on you know, any plaque just to try and see why is it there? Because you know, everything is there for a reason. I want to ask you uh, in a minute about some, some other tips of places, particularly in the Dublin area to, to visit both well-known and, and less well-known, uh, but, I realise as well that there are people watching this from from much further afield than than uh, than Dublin. Uh, somebody writes uh, that she is watching from California around 1900. Some of my great grandparents came here from Galway and Killeter. I'm really interested in the tradition of the wake. It's a tradition in my family still. Are the roots of the wake in Catholicism or pre-Catholic paganism or both? Is the Irish attitude about death unique? I don't think the Irish attitude about death is unique, and I think there are versions of the wake in other places. Now, the wake, um, interestingly, in the sort of mid-19th century, you find all sorts of letters from different bishops trying to get a handle on the wake. And bishops in Ireland through the 19th century were very, very unhappy about the wake tradition because the wake tradition was one of the places where young men and young women could actually socialise. You know, there aren't pubs, there aren't clubs, there aren't places for people to go on dates. And I, you know, it, the truth is lots of people met at funerals who then ended up getting married. And there were all sorts of games associated with wakes. Um, and these games, certainly the church thought were deeply inappropriate. There were games where like a young man would sit in the centre of a circle and all the women would circle around. And when um, someone shouted stop, person at a particular point have to go and sit on the young man's knee and the, the the priests were horrified by these sort of games that were being played at wakes also horrified by the amount of drink that was being drunk which obviously lowered people's inhibitions so uh, the church I mean it is obviously associated with funerals which then took place the next day in, in the church but it has its roots certainly um, outside of this, the church um, and the role of the priests, and eventually priests would be allowed in for about half an hour and then told to leave, or they could join the drinking. So there are all sorts of stories. 19th century um, wakes are really well worth reading about, and there's been a number of things written about them, but the stories of sort of popular, how you mixed popular culture with religion in Ireland. I think the Irish were very pragmatic Catholics. You know, they kept what they liked from paganism and then attached a bit of Catholicism onto it. Um, and it was a Catholicism that many in the Vatican would not have recognised. I can I remember my mother telling me about how um, she and her friend, when they were quite small kids, used to 
look out for wakes because they pop in and get some, crash them for some free lemonade. There's another question about, does Gillian have a particular favourite site which captures an incident or event, perhaps a lesser known one? Oh, it's like asking someone to pick their children. I love so many of, of the sites. Um, there's one really thing that really sort of stopped me in my tracks in a tiny museum, which is Cove Heritage Museum, which is in a little Presbyterian or Methodist, old Methodist or Presbyterian church at the top of the hill. You walk up quite a lot of steps and look down over the harbour and it's really tiny. Um, and uh, in it, they have what is incredibly moving. So they have this tiny little display case and in it, there are some rings and some brooches and other really small personal possessions. And these were personal possessions that were taken off bodies that were brought in from the Lusitania when the Lusitania was torpedoed. And they were taken off the bodies and kept, and a list was written up describing the person who was taken off, you know, a 23 year old woman with woody cheeks uh, wearing this and describing the clothes and also wearing this and looking for people to identify those bodies before they buried them. And some of those bodies were never identified and you still have you know, a little dove brooch. And I just saw that they were incredibly moving in this tiny little museum and it was totally unexpected. So sometimes, you know, I never pass a museum without going in because there's always something in it. And then, you know, if, you're, if it's my absolute favourite, it's not a, a hidden museum, it's uh, Kilmainham Jail because it's where I went first as a small child and it absolutely stuck with me the stories that were told and you know I guess in some ways set me on this path um which may or may not have been a good thing I think with with Kilmainham it's it's not just the I suppose the jail itself it's the museum as well is Mm. is particularly worth um the museum and people I think when they do the tour often only give the museum a cursory look and you really should look closely at the museum there's some amazing pieces in there one of the most moving oh I don't know there's loads of stuff that's moving I keep saying things are moving there's a box of chocolates um that was sent out from Mount Joy prison a box of chocolates that had been given to a man who was to be executed by actually one of the prison warders that he'd become friendly with he had sent the box of chocolates out to a friend of his with a note saying hopefully we can eat these together that wasn't to be because he was executed and the cellophane was never opened. And so that box of chocolates is on display in the museum. There is a handful of seashells taken from Skerry's Beach, which is where I'm from, that's there that was taken by Muriel McDonough just before she went for a swim in Skerry's and drowned. And she had been the wife of Thomas McDonough, who was executed uh, in 1916. And it's these little small things she'd collected them to give to her her small child who was in hospital at the time and you know that was what he what was left you know for him from her so there's all these like small stories tragic stories that I think are are very moving and and Kilmainham Jail has some amazing artifacts on display and uh, absolutely worth the museum is worth you know spending some time in. Um, Another question I was surprised to find the identification of famine, this is the 1840s, famine victims buried in a mass grave in a book open to the public in Glasnevin Cemetery. These came from the North and South Dublin unions or workhouses. Yet I'm aware of few other mass graves or elsewhere. 
uh, of the identification of family victims around the country. Could Gillian shed some light on this? That's very true. Most of the most of the mass graves don't have uh, full records. So Abistruri graveyard, which is about nine thousand graves just outside uh, Skibbereen, uh, the those buried there are not named. Um, for the most part, mass graves uh, are, don't have names, though those out of workhouses have a much better chance of being named because those people went into the workhouses and they were registered. So workhouse, the, those things like the Dublin unions, they tend to have a greater chance of people being named, though the records, I would say, are probably not entirely Accurate. In fact, there may well be some more people that are in those graves, but out of workhouses, you have a much better chance of getting um, names for people buried in mass graves. Um, another question, do you know if there are any exhibits or places of commemoration dedicated to the children who died in Dublin's Foundling Hospital? That's a good question. I don't know um, of, of that. Um, and there really ought to be. And it may well be that there is a plaque somewhere, but I'm not... Uh, aware of it. Another question, should there be a kind of measurement to determine whether an event should have a museum commemorating it? Is there a minimum tragedy? Is it up to each society to decide? That is a good question. Um, I don't know that there needs to be, I mean, museums come out of all sorts of different backgrounds. I think that's one of the things, I mean, it may be that in a national museum, which is kind of quite a different remit to a local museum, as to why and who who would get put into that over, say, a a different museum. I think one of the things that has had a big impact in more recent years about like exhibitions has been um, our determination to commemorate everything. There's been this decade of commemorations that is ongoing and that's great. And I, I, I absolutely think that these events need to be commemorated, but they're doing so at the expense of of enormous amount of other events or other individuals or other things that could be commemorated that aren't necessarily about a date or you know a particular point in time Mm. uh, that could be about you know the way in which something happened over a long period of time so when we spend all of this money and the government has spent an inordinate amount of money on this decade of commemorations I think it's not necessarily a, a good idea I mean I'm jaded by it and I do this professionally um and it means we haven't told a lot of other stories. Mm. We haven't told a lot of sort of social and cultural. And yes, they're trying to bring in other stories through it, but it is quite heavily. I'm looking at sort of the uh, lectures that were kind of sponsored by the president. They were all quite heavily political to, or at least they were dominated by sort of political discourse. And I think that's not always a good idea. So I think we need to be careful about over commemorating things because what politicians do is politics. They're not doing history and they do things for, for those reasons. And I think sometimes local museums pick up on a community thing, in a, which is actually somewhat a lot way, a lot of ways more interesting. So I don't think there is a barometer really for, for tragedy. And in fact, I think I'd be really happy if we you know, had some museums about happiness and good things. We don't really do that so much. Somebody has posted, just to clarify, the crossover Michael Collins' grave was erected in the 1940s. And we also have, um, according to Tim Pat Coogan, Dev stipulated that the cost of the memorial to Collins should not exceed £300, and it should be in limestone, not marble. He prescribed a formula of words he wanted used on the cross and ordered that there be no English on the front of it. Uh, the cemetery records show that on 
31st of July 1939, a few weeks before the world went to war, de Valera took time out to sign personally the certificate of authorization for the design and erection of the Memorial Cross over his old adversary. So just um, uh, to, to finish, for people who are living in, in the Dublin area or might be visiting Dublin, you've mentioned a number of places already. Kilmainham is one of the, the most interesting places to, to visit. Uh, you've mentioned Kalini Hill, which I think many people will not know about the, the commemoration there. Any other places in Dublin that you would single out? Well, I'd said everyone, obviously, to Kilmainham. Uh, I'd also, and it, this may not have reopened yet, but I'd also send everyone to St. Mickens um, and uh, St. Mickens Church, which has a crypt. Um, it's famous because Handel um, apparently uh, practised uh, the Messiah before it had its um, premiere in the Shamble Street in the church. But underneath the church, uh, there is uh, a crypt that you can go into and to see the remains of um, a number of bodies there, um, allegedly a nun and a crusader, though I'm not convinced that that's what they actually were. But there's also um, the Shears brothers who were involved in the 1798 rebellion were buried there and there's a death mask of Theobald Wolf Tone. And I have been many times and think it's it's a great place to go. Another museum that I think is probably not as well known as maybe it should be is um, the Maritime Museum out in Dunleary. And for anyone interested in maritime history, it's really worth um, popping out to that. Um, I think it's a, it, it's actually in, it's also in a church, in a church that was built for seafarers. So it has this association with uh, the sea right from its very beginning. And it's definitely worth going to. And I also think... Um, if you're in Dublin and you know lots of people wandering around Dublin on lunch breaks or whatever, is keep an eye on the plaques. Someone might find one for the Foundling Hospital, but also things like walking around, say, Stephen's Green, where you'll pass um, the statue to Robert Emmett. And that was a massively controversial statue that the government was afraid to put out in public for many years. It stayed in Ivy House because... You know, Emmett's famous speech from the dock before his execution was about how his epitaph wasn't to be written until after Ireland taken her place among the nations of the earth. And uh, the government were afraid to put Emmett's statue out because it might be seen that they now thought, you know, a 26 county republic was OK and uh, that this was Robert Emmett's epitaph. So there are all sorts of stories behind the statues that you pass on the street, a really controversial statue of Wolf Tone also down um, on uh, St. Stephen's Green. So it's wandering around those and wondering and you know, why they're there, what their significance is, all of those things sort of enliven a trip around the city, I always find. So Gillian's book, here's my welcome copy of uh, <laughs> The Darkness Echoing. Um, it's it's a really enjoyable book. It's really informative. There's so many things about Irish history and about Ireland that um, certainly I didn't know. And, and you've got a, a sense of some of them um, this evening. Thank you for listening to this podcast from the Dublin Festival of History. The festival is brought to you by Dublin City Council and organised by Dublin City Libraries in partnership with Dublin City Council Culture Company. For further podcast episodes and for all the latest festival news, be sure to visit dublinfestivalofhistory.ie or follow us on Twitter where we're at, at HistFest. HistFest.